Well, you can turn in your Bible to Matthew 16. The text is also printed on the next page of the bulletin. We'll look at chapter 16, verses 1 through 12 this morning. It's been a few months uh, since we've been in Matthew's Gospel together. Um, just picking up where we left off. So uh, let's uh, do a brief recap, sort of remember where we are in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Matthew wrote this Gospel to testify to Jesus as the Christ. He's the Messiah, the, the Hebrew, the Jewish Messiah. Uh, so Matthew wrote to show that Jesus, he really is this Messiah. He really does fulfill the Hebrew scriptures, uh, even though that meant really that he burst the categories of the Hebrew people. Uh, he wasn't exactly what they were expecting. Uh, some of the expectations and assumptions that they had uh, were, were that Yahweh, their God, the one true God, had eyes for them only, uh, that they were exclusively beloved of God, that when the Messiah came, he would sort of be for them, but really kind of against everybody else in the world. Uh, But Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world in order to reconcile people from every tribe and tongue and nation to God. Yes, first to the Jews, he came to his people first, but then every bit as much uh, to the Gentiles also. And in his ministry to this point, that we see in the Gospel of Matthew, the strongest opposition Jesus had encountered was from the religious leadership of his own people, the the Hebrews, the the Jews. Uh, Recently, he had withdrawn from Jewish lands as a critique of the self-righteous entitlement of his own people, and he had gone into uh, Gentile country, Gentile territory, to bless and heal and save people there uh, from their life apart from God. So Jesus has compassion for all kinds of sinners, and he's been performing these wondrous signs of his gracious love, even toward those who had historically been mortal enemies of his people. So at the end of chapter 15, uh, we saw Jesus feeding uh, thousands of Gentiles, miraculously taking seven loaves of bread and increasing it, multiplying it, turning it into even more than enough for everyone, and then having seven whole baskets of crumbs left over, much more than he began with. What, what they were left over with. So signifying the superabundance of his uh, gracious love to sustain and satisfy us, even Gentiles. So, of course, the Hebrew scriptures taught that the Messiah would do such things as this. You can find plenty of evidence in the Old Testament uh, pointing to uh, this kind of Messiah. But the religious professionals didn't like it. They were reluctant to admit it, uh, which is why they come to Jesus insisting that they prove himself on their terms in ways they approve. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. Uh, Jesus uh, actually condemns the religious leaders in no uncertain terms, and he warns his people not to be influenced by them. Jesus thinks this is very important, so let's give his words careful attention. Let's pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, by your spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us hearts and minds that are not only attentive to your word, but that perceive what you are saying to us in this good word of your son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. 
You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they were going across the Sea of Galilee, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive Do not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so who are the Pharisees and Sadducees? And what is their teaching that Jesus wants us to be wary of? Uh, They were two prominent, major, maybe the most prominent uh, social groups in Israel. They had opposing philosophies. They had different ideas about religion and uh, politics. For example, the Pharisees developed a lot of extra-biblical oral traditions uh, and commandments, and the Sadducees opposed this. They insisted on the authority of the written scriptures alone, and particularly the the authority of the Torah, the five books of Moses. Uh, However, on the other hand, the Sadducees also seem to be a bit anti-supernaturalist, even though they have scriptures that are supernaturalist. not believing doctrines like the, the resurrection or any kind of afterlife uh, or angels or demons or anything like that. So uh, while the Pharisees seem to hold these doctrines more or less like we Christians do. So both groups, um, they held positions of power in the Sanhedrin, which was the official religious establishment of the Jews in that day. They were something like a Supreme Court that handled religious matters. Uh, made up of high priests and Levites and prominent uh, elders of Israel. Even though their rule was subject to the Roman government, they were not the main group of authority in charge in the land of Israel uh, under the Roman government, they were still in a position of great privilege and influence among the people, the Pharisees and Sadducees, though they were generally hostile to each other. Uh, That is important to recognize. They vied for power like we would see political rivals vying for power uh, today, political parties doing today. So someone, you know, looking at the Republicans and the Democrats in our country's political system might say they have very different philosophies and agendas and platforms and programs. The things they talk about are different. But at the end of the day, they're they're all still playing the same power game. Right. And the same can be said of the Pharisees and the Sadducees in a a religious or political debate. Uh, They might appear to be mortal enemies, but they fundamentally conceived of power in the same way. They held political power. They wanted to maintain that power, and they sought more of it. So when Jesus comes along, these groups that are normally enemies 
united to obstruct him and oppose Jesus together. They agreed that Jesus had to go because he's a threat to their way of life. Even, even though their ideas of life are very different in the debate room, Jesus was a threat to their way of life. So Jesus, who represented the kingdom of God come to earth, he evoked a unified response from all kinds of sinners who opposed him. <clears throat> and he tells his disciples to beware the leaven of these groups or the teaching of these groups. So these groups, um, being otherwise hostile toward one another, they wouldn't say they share a teaching. They teach very different things. Their respective public teachings were in conflict with each other. And we don't actually see them teaching anything specific in this passage that maybe Jesus is responding to, saying, see that teaching? Don't buy it, right? <clears throat> we, we don't see them telling anyone what to do or what to think here. So what is Jesus talking about when he tells them, when he tells us, to beware their teaching uh, first, let me point out something very important. Take a step back and realize Jesus does not warn us to beware any physical threat. He does not tell us to beware uh, harm that people can do to us bodily or financially or anything like that. Jesus warns us about teaching. It's it's easy to be worried about some political danger. It's easy to be worried about physical attack in some way, shape, or form. But Jesus tells us the real danger of living as one of his people in this world is the danger of false teaching. That's been a big problem. That's been the big problem since the serpent's false teaching in the garden. So Adam uh, in the garden, he was meant to protect his bride by keeping her in the faith through the true teaching of God's word. Jesus is the new Adam who places his bride, the church, on her guard against false teachers. Like Adam should have. So in the rest of the New Testament, the apostles all recognize false teachers as the number one problem, right? So don't worry about what people can do to you. Do Beware what they might teach, what might shape your understanding of God, what they might entice you to believe, what mindset they might transmit to you, what, what influences your faith, what influences your trust in Christ. One of Paul's main, main instructions to the young pastors, uh, Timothy and Titus, is that they would watch out for false teachers, that they would guard the faith and promote good biblical teaching in the churches. So he says in 1 Timothy 4, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. <clears throat> and Paul makes it emphatically clear in his letter to the Galatian church that he could not be warning them about anything more important when he says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the gospel we preach to you. Let him be accursed. As we've said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. doesn't get more serious than that. False teaching is the number one problem. So Jesus warns us about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees about these groups that most would say teach very different things. So they must hold something in common that he lumps them all together, right? 
He lumps them together and says, that teaching, you watch out for that. <clears throat> so what do they have in common? Both groups are religious and both groups oppose Jesus. So both groups would say they serve Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. Both groups are interested in the spiritual life of the people of Israel. <clears throat> both groups make a big deal about teaching the true scriptures. Both groups are religious. And yet, both groups reject and resist Jesus, who is himself the true king of Israel. He's the one come from Yahweh. So, <clears throat> on the one hand, they profess to follow Yahweh. But on the other hand, when their God comes to them in Jesus, they refuse to follow him. And they teach others also to avoid Jesus. They say they follow the one true God, but in reality, their hearts are far from him. They teach a religious righteousness that comes through the law rather than the righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. And in that sense, what they're teaching is no different from any other world religion that says you can become good, you can fix things, you can achieve enlightenment or a higher plane or a right relationship with God or whatever it is by changing some hot habits, by practicing some moral codes, purifying your own life, whatever. Some version of self-salvation, some version of the spiritual life through your own thoughts changing, through your own actions changing. But the Pharisees and Sadducees were promoting that kind of worldly religion that everybody teaches as if it were what Yahweh had revealed in the scriptures. And that's where Jesus says, this stuff is deadly, this stuff will kill you. They're, they're promoting worldly religion, righteousness through law-keeping, as if it were what Yahweh had revealed in the scriptures. So like the serpent in the garden, they start with God's word. They say they're, they're probably teaching God's word, right? And then they twist it in ways that actually end up leading you away from God. And what they're teaching, even though they would say it's good spiritual stuff, it's actually rotten at the core because it ends up being opposed to Jesus. So someone <clears throat> listening to their teaching might be convinced that it's biblical, it's actually a distortion of true Christ-centered biblical teaching. You might hear some inspiring message from them about following God, giving it your all, but it winds up inspiring you to move further away from Jesus in your heart, recognizing him and trusting him. It's teaching that's insidious, like leaven, right, that in a lump of dough, it sneaks its way invisibly through the lump of dough until it infects everything. <clears throat> it seems spiritual, but it's just worldly religion based on unbelief, promoting self-reliance, self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, casting suspicion on Jesus, distracting you from Jesus, uniting you with other religious people, very religious people, in ways that are opposed to Jesus. It's a teaching that brings people together, for sure. A lot of people are going to be gathered together for their sermons. But it doesn't produce the kind of unity that we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are so many ways that teaching like this has snuck into the church over the centuries. It's a constant problem, and we could talk about all kinds of specifics for a long time. Maybe you could think of several examples. But let's take a closer look at this encounter with the Pharisees and Sadducees specifically. They come to Jesus already opposing him. They're already his enemies. We know that already from the Gospel of Matthew. 
they're looking to test him. They don't come actually interested in who he is, what he has to say, what kinds of works that he does. They don't come open to him. They're already closed off against him. They appear to be open, but that's deceptive. They, they're looking to trip him up and tear him down. Jesus has been performing all kinds of signs and wonders throughout the region, out in the public, out in open. So if they were really looking for a sign to believe that he had come from God, well, they've had ample opportunity for that already. But they've already judged him, and they've already rejected him in their hearts. So when they ask for a sign from heaven, Jesus doesn't play their game. He calls them out. When it's evening, you say it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. So he brings up what we know, uh, if it kind of stuck in your mind, that, that ancient mariner's rhyme, Red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky at morning, sailor's warning. Maybe you've heard that. Uh, Apparently it's been a general rule in, I looked it up on Wikipedia, in middle latitudes at sea, uh, when you see red in the west at sunset, it means there's a high pressure system moving in, providing stable weather conditions. And seeing red in the east at sunrise uh, generally meant that a low pressure system was coming behind the high pressure, bringing unstable weather conditions, right? So... The Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, they ask for a sign from heaven, a sign in the skies, something that they would, you know, like obvious, like the red sky at night or in the morning. And Jesus tells them, sure, they know how to read the skies when it comes to forecasting the weather to some degree, at least. But he, he says they don't know. They do not know how to interpret, how to judge, how to read the signs of the times, the signs that he's already been doing, the signs that indicate that the kingdom of heaven is at hand in his presence. They've seen the signs already, and they cannot understand them. They will not understand them. They do not see the spiritual significance of what Jesus has been doing. His words are a clear judgment of their lack of faith, and his departure from them is further judgment. And he calls them an evil an adulterous generation that seeks for a sign. So it's very specific language, very meaningful language. They are adulterous spiritually because Yahweh had betrothed them to himself. Yahweh had taken the people of Israel to himself as a bridegroom takes a bride to himself. They're in that kind of intimate relationship with God. And yet when the bridegroom came to them in the person of Jesus Christ, they betrayed him. They were unfaithful to him. They were not lovingly devoted to him as a bride ought to have been. They sought to be rid of him. They were not interested in being with him, in participating in his life with him, in being part of what he was doing. And the way that this spiritual adultery was manifesting was in their view of what he was doing among the Gentiles, among the nations. What he's just been doing, what has stirred this up, is what he's been doing among the nations, among the Gentiles. They did not like the idea of their Messiah having mercy on the nations, on their enemies. 
So Jesus mentions the sign of Jonah. Jonah exposes the self-righteous religious condemning person for what he is. Evil and adulterous, opposed to the God that he professes to follow, right? So Jonah was a religious leader in Israel, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but he was a prophet. God called him to participate in a mission of mercy to the Gentiles, to go to Nineveh, a city that was full of the enemies of God's people. Jonah refused. He did not like what God was doing, and eventually he became angry enough about it that he wanted to die, which Sarah read about in our Old Testament reading. Jonah hated the idea. We get this from the end of his book, that he hated it all the way from the beginning. He hated the idea of God's mercy being extended to his enemies. He hated the idea of God's mercy being extended to people that he thought did not deserve God's favor. Jonah did not want to acknowledge that God's favor toward him might also be gracious and merciful. Jonah would prefer to think that he deserved God's favor and attention, unlike those people who don't. Like every good religious person who has ever lived, Jonah wanted to trace the blessings back to his own worth, his own innate exceptionalism. But if the blessings of a relationship with God are extended to just anybody, these terrible sinners over here who also happen to be my mortal enemies who I hate, well... What does that do to my self-reliance? What does that do to my self-sufficiency, my self-righteousness? It puts me on equal footing with the people that I've condemned and despised. It puts me entirely at God's mercy, just like they are. And the book of Jonah was written as a huge glowing sign that says, religious people hate God's mercy. The life of of the prophet Jonah stands as a sign that says you can profess to follow Yahweh and hate him, resent him, resist him, reject him and his ways. If you think God loves you because you're something special, if you wish that you could be something special so you could really be assured of God's love for you, If you're bummed out that you're not special enough, and therefore that God must not love you, then you've bought into the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It boils down to, it boils religion down to who you are and what you do. If you look at other sinners and condemn them and despise them and don't celebrate God's mercy to them, you're envious of it. Or angry about it, that's Jonah religion. That's the religion of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That's the religion of self-righteous exceptionalism. So if you don't perceive the spiritual significance of what Jesus has done in so many of his signs and wonders, and cast yourself on his mercy and delight in his compassion and thank him for the privilege of participating in his love, then you're in danger of the leaven of self-righteousness. It's normal for disciples of Jesus to struggle with this stuff. When Jesus first says, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, then his disciples begin discussing among themselves, we brought no bread. They're not just idiots. There's something wrong with their hearts. 
There's something wrong with their spiritual understanding, and they're not unique in this. They're just like us. This is in the Bible because the disciples of Jesus are like this. And we need to be shown this about ourselves, this tendency. Jesus starts talking in parables. Jesus starts pointing out the metaphorical meaning of his miracles. And we're easily stuck just thinking about it on one level, on the earthly level. Jesus feeds thousands of people. And we're stuck thinking about how we can keep our bellies filled with the bread from someone who can feed people like this. Rather than understanding that he's the bread from heaven and his life with God sustains us and nourishes and satisfies all our, our souls. But Jesus, aware of this, it says, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So he has great patience with his people, with his little faiths, and, uh, and he helps them along in their understanding in ways that he did not help the Pharisees and Sadducees who had demanded signs from him. He helps the disciples, he helps us to see the symbolism of his signs, to see the spiritual significance of his signs. He's not just reminding them, look, next time you get hungry, just remember I can produce bread out of thin air so you won't be hungry. He says, I'm not talking about bread. He helps us to see the spiritual significance of his signs. He helps us to understand that what he is doing is about more than earthly food. He helps us to perceive that he's giving his own life for the life of his church, which is made up of all kinds of people, all kinds of sinners. He helps us to see the magnitude of his mercy, to see that he establishes unity in his church, his body, even among people from every tribe and tongue and nation, he establishes unity by his mercy. He helps us to see his grace at work in our lives and in the world. He helps us to understand how he has blessed us to participate in his work, just as the disciples were the ones who gave the food. Remember when you gave the food and then you collected up the fragments? He helps us to see how he's blessed us with the privilege of participating in his work. He helps us to see himself, truly, in the revelation of the scriptures. You could read the scriptures and come away thinking about yourself. About who you should be. And what you should do. Or you could read the scriptures and see Jesus in them. You could read the scriptures and be overwhelmed with your obligation. Or you could read the scriptures and be absorbed with Jesus. You could read the scriptures as a guidebook for your own exceptionalism. Or you could read the scriptures and celebrate the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you resent and resist his calling to join him in his merciful work, like Jonah, like the Pharisees and Sadducees, like religious people who condemn sinners? Beware that leaven. Beware that attitude and that mindset and that teaching. It has the appearance of spirituality, but it will turn you away from Jesus. Or do you celebrate the Lord's mercy, freely given to you, and to all kinds of bad people just like you. 
Are you glad to follow Jesus and to tell others of his gracious love? When you think of Jesus' compassionate heart towards sinners, do you think of reasons why Jesus should not love those people? Or does your jaw drop in wonder? What is his heart like? That is so unlike my heart, I cannot even conceive it. What's inside of him that makes him like this? How could someone be so gracious? Why would he give his life to make us part of his family? Why would he invite me to join him in God's everlasting love? Beware the teaching that would distract you from Jesus and that would stamp out that kind of wonder out of your heart. That would lead you to invest more in your own growth, in your own development, rather than leading to a deeper love for the merciful Lord who is revealed in the scriptures. Beware that leaven. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, sanctify us. Cleanse us by the washing of water with your word. Holy Spirit, help us always to perceive Jesus and his mercy in the scriptures. Teach us to recognize the spiritual significance of what we're being taught. Father, guard us and keep us in your love by directing our minds and hearts to Jesus always as we look to him in the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.